This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Gardner-Barnes, who is the Deputy Secretary, Freight, Strategy and Planning at Transport for New South Wales. Claire's role is to focus on a safe and efficient transport system, keeping people and goods moving and connecting communities and supporting economic growth. Decisions made in her department are critical to how we all move around the city of Sydney. So hello, Claire, and welcome to Talking Cities. I know we're in for a great discussion, and I'm going to dive straight in. And the first question I ask all my guests is, what is your favourite city around the world and why? Okay, well, I don't come from New South Wales. I'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so I'm a Maroon supporter, and I'm going to have to say Brisbane. Yeah, right. Because that's where I grew up. Yeah. And uh, I've spent a lot of time there. I have spent some time I'm in Darwin, which also is very close to my heart. Uh, but yeah, I think I have to say Brisbane. And what do you like about Brisbane? I really like the fact that it's leafy green and it's very close to both the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast. Yeah. My family's from Brisbane as well. And um, so I, I, I get the Brisbane thing. And when I talk about global cities in Australia, I talk about Melbourne, Sydney, um, and I'm now referring definitely to Brisbane, I, I believe, as a city that's going to become a true global city. Um, yeah. And because it has all the attributes, you know, you've got the coast, you know, you've got the great brand of the Gold Coast from a tourism perspective, um, and then you've got uh, international connections, you've got an airport um, that is expanding and has room to expand, you've got train connection to the city, it, you know, it ticks all those boxes. Yeah, and a joined up local government yes. that allows planning to happen in a very integrated way. Yeah. And so for me, coming to Sydney and seeing things like cycle paths that don't join up, I know. it's, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And we're, you know, I mean, so the mega council um, in Brisbane is similar to the mega councils we see in the US, you know, mm. in cities like Boston and New York and San Francisco, you've got, you know, a mayor who sets the vision and the tone for the whole city. Um, and we don't have that here. We've got a Lord Mayor of Sydney, um, you know, who, in my opinion, has a, has a great perspective uh, on the environment and things that really matter, social issues. But that doesn't go any further than her jurisdiction or her, her boundary. Yes. Um, and so the role of the state government in trying to join up those disparate uh, councils at a local level is really heightened. I it think is as isn't a it? result. Yeah. yeah. And um, do you think the Greater Sydney Commission, you know, that the implementation of that body is helping with that? Enormously. So right. we're working very, very closely with the Greater Sydney Commission, and apparently, integrated transport and land use planning hasn't happened in Sydney before, and mm. that's really our mantra. So in order to do that effectively, we're working side by side. We're co-located out at Parramatta with the Greater Sydney Commission. We're ensuring all of our transport information as we start our future transport planning agenda is completely aligned. All of our planning assumptions are aligned. The data inputs for future jobs and population projections are aligned. That is just groundbreaking. Yeah. I wonder why there is a tension between transport and planning. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not only in government, you know, even in organizations like AECOM, um, there's always been a tension between planning and what planners do and transport. Is it transport that comes first or is it planning that comes first? 
And uh, do you have an opinion on that? Or I think it gets down to the people, really. Yeah. Like I've created a really positive working relationship with the Sarah Hill from the Greater Sydney yeah. Commission and, and with Lucy. Um, and and even planning now, like this morning I've come back from a meeting with the Deputy Secretary from planning. We work really closely together. And so I think there's momentum now for change. And it is really about leaders demonstrating how you collaborate mm. and instilling that culture right through the organisation. Mm. There's a real theme about collaboration, I think, at the moment, you know, everywhere and everything we do. We talk about collaboration in future of work and, you know, millennials thinking about, you know, having a portfolio of projects, you know, uh, sorry, of work. Um, and that's around collaborating, working, you know, shared workspace. I, I can really see it playing a, a big role in, in how we govern our cities in the future. I think unless... Uh, transport really does that well, then new developments like hospitals, schools, like there's a huge growth in schools required for our population growth. Mm. Transport needs to be all over that. Yeah. We need to be working hand in hand. We need to have a partnership approach. We can't have afford to have a disjunct. And if governments and cabinet ministers are going to make the right decision about the best way to plan for the future bureaucrats need to demonstrate that we're all working together and have the same outcome. Yeah. Do you think the community gets that yet? Or is this a massive cultural shift that we, we change the way people think about the way we govern and do stuff? I think it is a huge cultural shift in Sydney and New South Wales. Mm. But as we demonstrate that publicly mm. and can show the improved outcomes, that's when the community will see, mm. yep, government's got it. Yeah. They are actually working together and we can see the difference it's being, that's yeah. out on the land and, and what it means for communities. That's yeah. where it's going to count. I notice I live on the Northern Beaches and I, I you know, I've, I've been watching the beeline being constructed and I've been really surprised at the opposition, uh, from the community against a major piece of infrastructure and investment in the community. And do you think that's perhaps that they weren't engaged enough in the whole process or what, how do you think we overcome that? I think, uh, when transport planners come in and we've got such a huge agenda around population growth, mm. And the impact on the local landscape is significant. It will be natural for every community to ask questions about why and why is this significant change got to happen through my beautiful suburb? Yeah. So the challenge for us is trying to make sure we think about the impact we're making on places. Yeah. And ensuring pedestrians feel safe. Mm. We're thinking about people walking and cycling mm. and wherever possible we're putting major infrastructure underground mm. so that it's not an eyesore and, and people can really see that the landscape doesn't have to be ruined by future transport and they're actually part of the collaborative decision-making. Mm. But if we're going to meet the needs of this city that's about to double in population, we need to double the transport infrastructure mm. to respond to that. Yeah. And that's going to change people's perception of their local community right through to western parts of Sydney. Yeah. And we need people to come on board with that and understand the impact that that'll have around their family home and around their local community. Yeah, I, I, just, I just get the feeling that people aren't fully appreciating the impact of 8 million people in Sydney um, by 2056, which is really just around the corner. And, you know, it's perhaps the government needs and the private sector 
has a role in helping people understand what this means and all the benefits that it brings, plus also the change in their in their local community to better understand the impact it'll have on them, both positive and perhaps negative. Yeah, so th- discussions around density levels mm. because people want to live where jobs are mm. and then the challenge for government if we're going to ensure that planning happens in a way that responds to where we want to create jobs and move the city population to the third city that's been created around the airport, then, you know, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity out there to create a beautiful city that mm. people from all over Australia want to come and live and work in. Yeah. Uh, so that requires joined up government where we create new jobs in partnership with industry and a beautiful, beautiful city with the hills in the background that everyone's putting their hand up to live in. Mm. Uh, that's a huge shift in culture for Sydney where people think of Western Sydney as, you know, where Anzac Bridge is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Parramatta is really going to be the setting. That's people from Western Yes, like it's a mind shift. It is a mind shift. But I, I, when you say so, people from all over Australia want to live in Western Sydney, I, I probably think, more broadly as well, I'd like to think that the best in the world want to live in Western Sydney and the best in the world want to live in Sydney, for example, you know, full stop. Um, you know, it's like a business. You're trying to attract the best talent. So we need to be very bold uh, in our aspirations for how we create this third city in Sydney. And, um, you know, transport's a critical part of that, you know, the yeah, convenience I- around transport, the experience we have on transport, how we walk, how we ride. I couldn't uh, agree more. And, and because we want to create that global attraction, then the impact on how we ensure that diversity is embraced mm. from day one in mm. our urban design will be really critical. Yeah, will be, will be. So, what, what do you what do you like about Sydney? Yeah, so I live in Potts Point, oh, and so awesome. it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we never take the car out. Yeah, you can walk. We walk everywhere. Yep. We catch the train from King's Cross. I had my parents visit recently, mm. quite elderly. Yeah. And, you know, we have a supermarket within 50 metres. The doctors, a one minute walk. Yep. They had a bank on the corner, a coffee yeah. shop within 10 metres. Like it, they just said, well, this is fantastic. It's flat. There's no hills. Uh, what a way to get around for an yeah. older person. And they felt very at home. And then, of course, the Opera House is not far away. So we went and enjoyed some great entertainment there. We have the Botanical Gardens. It's There's so much that's close and nearby and it's very accessible if you're close to public transport. Yeah. So you've just described there a microcosm for, I think, the perfect urban you know, environment. So as we develop Western Sydney, we need all of those key elements you just talked about, don't we? We need culture, you know, as in you talked about the Opera House, which is critically important, you need the amenity of the harbour, um, you know, or something similar to the harbour, um, transport, uh, ability to access your amenities, local amenities, shopping, you know, walkability, all those sort of things. And I think that was a really nice little grab we just got from you. <laughs> Yeah, Des- describing and, uh, this urban utopia, and and as I get older, I'm appreciating so much more what yeah. that means yeah. because you know when you've got younger kids and you're doing drop-offs yeah. all weekend yeah. and in the car, like the car is your king, and so now my children are adults and that's not the case anymore. And yeah. it, it means I get around very very differently. Yeah, I've given so I've got young kids. I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, so we're soccer on the weekend. You know, two two teams and managers of soccer teams as well. But I have taken the step of giving up my 
my car. So we only have one car in our family now. So my, and I, I think I'm an early adopter in car share and ride share in that I, I use Uber and I use GoGet just to get around to, to actually reduce that car dependence. Um, and the, you know, in my view, I'm doing my bit to reduce congestion in Sydney. Um, have you got any thoughts around the future of our relationship with cars? Yeah, well, having I've got four boys, right. and uh, up until recently, only two of them had a car, and at one point, only one. Wow! And this is a growing statistic, isn't yeah, it, for, for younger people? Exactly, and and even the car ownership, there are points in in all of their lives where they haven't owned a car yeah. and they've sold their car to go and travel overseas yeah. and, you know, they've lived overseas for 12 months and come back and not had one for, for six months. So they live very differently and and I think their relationship with transport is very different and as a result, more and more they rely on public transport yeah. and they rely on personalised transport and they do car share all the time with their yeah. friends. So yeah. they have a very different way of thinking about how they'll get around town. Yeah. And, and cycling and walking yeah. is a big part of that. Yeah. It's huge. I, I walk around the city, um, to go to all my meetings because you just can't drive any, anywhere at the moment because there's so much great work going on here. Um, but it, it would seem to me that the capacity of our footpaths are full right now in Sydney, in the city of Sydney. Would you agree with that? And secondly, oh, yeah. what can we do to to help with this congestion um, to, I guess, improve access for, for walkers and, uh, and bike riders? I think that's a huge challenge for us. And coming from other jurisdictions where, in fact, bike riders are allowed to ride on footpaths, yeah. and I'm really conscious in, in Sydney and New South Wales, that's a rare occurrence, and for good reason, because yeah, of the dangerous. population density. Yeah. Uh, so I think all of us need to think about what our open streets might look like, how mm. do we make them more pedestrian-friendly, and for every community, what does that mean for how we build our infrastructure and our utilities mm. and ensure that pedestrians are seen as really the, the kings and queens of the future. And and in the CBD, that's increasingly becoming important, mm. particularly as people are choosing to live in the city with car parking being a problem. Mm. That's probably the biggest challenge I have mm. in living in Sydney and yeah. taking the car out is where do you ever find a park? You just don't need that anxiety, do <laughs> no. you? You just don't need it. No. It's, that's seriously, it's just not <laughs> worth it for me. <laughs> so increasingly we need to think about cars in the CBD and yeah. how do we reduce that and uh, what that means for how the role of the taxis and other car sharing services play and what it could mean for how pedestrians take more control of their city landscape. Yes. Does that mean we, we become as bold as cities like Copenhagen um, in pedestrianising major thoroughfares? I mean, we've got George Street. That was pretty bold and hasn't the world hasn't ended, has it? No, it hasn't. And in fact, Transport put a lot of effort into alerting the community to the impacts of that mm. and as a result has created some significant changes in transport patterns that yeah. have been sustainable. Yeah. And and so there's a really good example mm. that with assistance in planning, mm. people are prepared to change their behaviours. Yeah. And I think as the growing population happens in the CBD and we become increasingly dependent on walking, yeah. 
the demand from the community for we need to free up our streets yeah. will happen more. It'll and just more. be natural. I think yeah. it'll just become natural. And the, the, part of the answer to that is making sure the interchange between transport modes is much easier and much better um, customer focused. Yeah. And if I use uh, Circular Key as an example where with the light rail and the ferries and the station, the rail station down there, mm. we've got all modes happening in yeah. one spot. Yeah. And we need to get much better at making sure that customer experience between modes is much better planned. And we've got an opportunity there with the remaking of Circular Quay and the redevelopment of the wharfs to, yeah. to put out there to the community, how would you like to see this gateway to Sydney reshaped? Can you see that coming up? There's so much going on right now. Can you see that coming up, the, the community being able to digest a major project there right now? I think there's an ideal opportunity yeah. there and particularly in that part of Sydney where there's so many tourists, uh, we've got the cruise ships coming in and mm. people carting luggage around in that precinct. On the weekend, it's jam-packed with people, not just from all over Australia, but all over the world and all over Sydney, wanting to come there and be part of that precinct. And so we need to make sure that into the future, we're really thinking about, well, how do we even reduce pedestrian uh, congestion by making sure the transport modes aren't contributing to that. Could you ever see a day when the Carl Expressway is reconsidered? <laughs> yeah, look. Do you talk about uh, it in government? Yes, so of it course is talked we do. about. It. All right. Well, uh, we talk about it in the private sector. That sort of change would be uh, engineers' delight, no doubt, because they love solving big problems. But it'd be extraordinarily yeah. expensive. So, uh, I'd like to put a park on it. Yeah, well, you know what I mean to turn it into green open space. <laughs> Well, the redevelopment of Circular Key certainly opens up new opportunities yeah. for how we use that space down there. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, the, the Carl Expressway plays a very, very critical role for the, the bridge and for traffic volumes. And so if we were going to do something significant, then mm. it would need to be very well planned. Yeah. Perhaps... Um you know, the challenge then as a major, you know, really important piece of critical infrastructure is to then consider how we declutter the space under it. And for our overseas listeners, this is uh, in Sydney, right down next to the Opera House and the ferry terminal, and it's quite cluttered at the moment. And it doesn't give you the, the, the visual access through to the water, does it? And the great, the ferries, you know, going in and out, which is a great thing to watch. Yeah. So I think there are some very great opportunities now to open that up. Like we have in that precinct, facilities there and utilities that aren't really required. Yeah. And so there is an opportunity to open up and make sure that the vision right through to the water mm. um, from Customs House is, uh, you know, we actually try and maximise that. Yeah. Because it's such a beautiful, beautiful precinct. Yeah. And we want to make sure that we use this opportunity for the, the design, creative parts of the world yeah. influence that and we create something that yeah. is extraordinary. Because, I mean, if you think about I, I think about how long things last, and that's that was 1988. That was for the bicentenary. <laughs> you probably saw it from Queensland or wherever you were. That was when we last upgraded that whole precinct, you know, and so that's a long time. And it is probably right now for, for redevelopment and reconsidering based on you know, population that's increased probably by 2 million people since then. Yes, um, and there's a lot of wasted space in that yeah, area as well yeah. um, that requires some beautification. Mm. Yeah. 
Now, would you say, would, it, would you think it's fair to say that we're paying catch up right now in transport infrastructure in Sydney? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, we are. And why is that? Well, I think the poles and wires opportunity by this government has allowed some spending to happen. Without money, yeah. uh, you can't invest in infrastructure, in transport. It is so expensive. And so it's so important to make the right decisions because mm. you're reshaping the future for yeah. many hundreds of years through these investments. There was a lot of planning done. So I've been in transport uh, nearly two years and there had been a lot of planning done prior to my arrival, but having the money to actually implement those plans, that's what's making the difference now. And we're at a very critical uh, point in time with the growth in population to make sure that we address the mass transit solutions in the best possible way yeah. and make sure that Western Sydney benefits not just the eastern suburbs. Yeah. So for our listeners, can you just explain how, you know, for example, the metro, how the government procures work like that and whether the private sector is involved or there's the public sector delivering that by themselves um, and how we continue this metro all throughout Sydney for the next yes. 30 years? So, look, I'm a big advocate of the metrification of Sydney. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to make a huge difference to how people get around. We can't do that in government without very strong partnerships with industry. Mm. Uh, the development opportunities all along uh, those new metro lines are critical. We want to make sure that as we develop stations in those places that the community's part of those decisions, the overstation development is going to meet their needs. They're designed in a way that reflects the urban landscape that the community wants to see for the future. Industry plays a key role in all of that. Mm. And so so without those partnerships very well established, without making sure we get the best minds from across the world involved in such a major project, and, and this project we've got of 64 kilometres of metro being put throughout the Sydney area is one of the biggest infrastructure projects that Australia's ever created. So mm. we've got to get it right. We've mm. got to do that in partnership with the community, with industry, with mm. academics, with the key stakeholders that are directly impacted. Mm. And, and most importantly, families who mm. want to live in those areas for the future, but also making sure we address uh, major social issues that have confronted us like affordable housing. Mm. So as we provide these new stations, we need to attract a diverse client group. Mm. And it's not just about those people who have money in their pockets to, to buy houses in the local area that are close to transport. We need to make sure we attract um, all sorts of investors, including those who need affordable housing opportunities to get into the market for the first time. And I guess around transport infrastructure, a lot of the time transport actually owns the land around the stations in, in you know, the overstation development here in the city. So that gives transport the opportunity to actually stipulate for the, when they sell, if they choose to sell that land, what level of affordable housing is going to be provided on that land. And then that reflects the price that they're able to achieve that sale. Yeah, and, and that only demonstrates more and more how closely we need to work with the Greater Sydney Commission, with mm. Department of Lands and Planning to ensure that we're making the right decisions and with local governments so that they feel like a true partner in this decision making. We'll only make effective decisions if we get the community on board and so collaboration is the key. Yeah. And what role does technology have, do you believe, in helping us engage better with community and collaborate? 
Because I know you're undertaking a, a, a new master plan at the moment. Yeah, we are. And you did the 2012 master plan, which was an incredibly wonderful technical tome. Um, and how, how is it going to change in 2017? Yes, yeah, so when we released that plan in 2012, we committed that in five years' time we'd review it. So that's well and truly underway at the moment. But hasn't the world moved on in those five it years? Has. It's a different <laughs> uh, place. Yes, yeah. and... So Western Sydney Airport wasn't no. even thought of when that plan uh, was finalised in the exact location where it, where it's now named and planning's well underway. And so there's lots of opportunities now to think about the emerging technologies and we're at a critical point in time now where the automation of vehicles is becoming highly competitive right across the world. Mm. And so... In our scenario planning for the future, we don't know how quickly a fully autonomous vehicle will be on our road as a mass transit solution for most of people in Sydney. Mm. But we need to prepare for that because mm. it will mean a very different way of designing our roads. We'll need to think about driverless buses and mm. what that means for how we plan mass transit solutions yeah. and what it means for car parking, um, how the consumers want to pick up that sort of technology. Will they feel confident and safe in a driverless vehicle? Mm. And so with the, the changes in autonomy, and, it, and it's a gradual thing, mm. uh, but we do want to trial those uh, mm. new technologies in different parts of Sydney and in regional parts of New South Wales as well. So the community can see the benefits because the safety benefits yeah. of this sort of automated technology is huge. Yeah. And part of that is engaging the community in a very different way to what we did in the last transport master plan development. So we're using digital technologies, we're using a lot more web presence, um, and we're going to use some game particularly to get young people involved mm. in providing feedback because this plan is going to take us up to 2056. Right. We're planning Sydney and New South Wales' future for young people, their children and their grandchildren. Mm. They need to have a really, really important role in shaping the future directions. Yeah. So we need to think about, well, how do they want to be engaged? Mm. So the gamification tools that we're developing at the moment allows them to sit in the hot seat of a transport planner mm. and understand some of the constraints that we need to consider as we're making transport decisions like we have a finite budget, mm. we have huge population demands, we need to work around population densities and ensure that we're doing this with an integrated approach with land use planning and we need to focus on where the jobs of the future are going to be. And thrown into that are natural disasters like flooding and bushfires that impact on our transport technology and our transport planning. So all of those things create an unpredictable world for the future mm. and we need the best minds from across the world to help us plan our city for the future and make sure we're prepared for how consumers and customers will pick up those new technologies in the same way they've embraced uh, ride-sharing yeah. in, in a phenomenal pace. And we need to be ready for that because customers have picked that up because they're in control. Mm. They can see where they're going to go. They can see how much it's going to cost them, it comes to their house, all of those things that people want for future transport solutions. So mm. 
the government has a role to play in making sure we also respond to that, particularly with our ageing population for the future. There are people who will need mobility access in a way that they haven't needed in the past and we need to be planning our cities. You talked about greater control there and, you know, I think everyone's enjoyed the Opal card. That's given us a bit more control, not having to, you know, look for cash or buy the paper ticket every week. Can you see a a time where transport is just integrated across all modes, um, you know, even from, you know, bike hire to car share to bus to train to ferry? Well, that's the idea. Without a card? (laughs) Yes. And... Well, we've all got mobile devices now, Mm. so we need to be looking to the future where that one mobile device provides an integrated platform for Mm. every transport mode Mm. and including private taxis. Uh, We need to think about how people want to control their spending Mm. and we need to be much more transparent about what it really costs to have a private vehicle and to take that on out on the road and who's really paying for the road upgrades. Um, clearly, government at all levels are contributing incredibly to transport infrastructure, mm. but the transparency around the real cost to the consumer is not always there. So part of the challenge for us is making sure people understand the true costs and what's really coming out of their pocket. Mm. Is that transport on demand? Is yeah. That- it is transport Dynamic on demand. Dynamic pricing. And-, <laughs> and, and it's understanding how with new technologies and with the impact of heavy vehicles and mm. the freight task, all of those things are going to impact on how consumers want to get around on roads and how we can influence their shift to public transport onto the metro, onto our rail, where we really want to be able to provide a service that reflects the customer needs. We can provide a much cheaper rail service by improving the number of customers who use mm. that service, particularly off-peak. Yeah. And so that requires business and industry and workplaces to think about yeah. a personalised workplace as well where people are not so restricted by Working nine to five. Businesses are getting on board with that, though, aren't they? I mean, I know ACOM is. We've got a a policy um, about our diversity and flexible work um, at the moment. Yeah, and I think as major businesses really start to reshape and create expectations for employees that that's what they'll provide, Mm. there are huge opportunities to expand that peak hour traffic and really get much better utilisation of our mass transit solutions. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, you, you've you started as a primary school teacher and you're now in a very senior position at Transport for New South Wales. Have you got any um, advice for our listeners on leadership and, and how to achieve what you've achieved in the, in throughout your career? Yeah, look, I, I think one of the key things, because I have moved around a lot in my career and mm. learnt so many different portfolios, that in creating a mindset of... I'm a female leader in this workplace. Mm. Part of the challenge is I don't need to be a content expert. Uh, There's a lot of content experts in transport who've been in the industry for a long time. There's a lot of consultants that we buy in for their expertise. And I'm really there to look through a different lens and throw out questions that transport planners don't always think about and and engineers don't always think about. So it's a different frame of reference and and often from a consumer or a female reference point, 
that in transport's not not often put on the table. It's it's a very unique place when you're often the only female in a room mm. of transport planners and engineers and it's really important that because consumers are women, mm. um, the ageing population, there's a lot of women out there yeah. who, who need to get around very differently to to the way men get around mm. who have used been part of the workforce for a long time, uh, don't have fa- family demands the way women have for a long time. Increasingly, they do. And and so that's cre- creating a shift in mindset. It is. Uh, but we need to be able to think about, well, if we're going to create more and more women leaders in the transport sector, then we need to start to value their contribution and their their way of viewing the world. Mm. And what they bring is a very different perspective about families and an understanding of customers. That's so important for planners yeah. to, to really think about and make sure that in the solutions they're putting forward to government, there is that broader perspective. We're thinking about diversity of customer and we're thinking about how we're growing as a nation to become more and more diverse and how we respond respond to that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution yeah i think what you've i mean uh, what you've talked about there is we, we were talking to lucy turnbull on this podcast recently and she talked about the female city and her sentiments around the role of, of women in being leaders in our city which i think is really important um you know how how we relate to workplace you know simple things like how you drop kids off if that's a woman's role and then has to get to work and then back to pick kids up and they're they're simple conversations that and considerations that you know Know, uh, a male engineer may not consider yes. um, in thinking about planning for transport. So, I mean, I'm at Central Station every day and more and more I'm seeing young parents with children dropping them off or yeah. picking them up from childcare mm. in prams. Yeah. Central Station's not great for getting around in No, France. it's not. It's certainly not. We'll be in the future, though. <laughs> yeah. So there's an amazing opportunity now with the revamping of Central Station mm. to think about how we make it a much more accessible place yeah. for people with a disability, the yeah. ageing population, and for young parents who need to use prams for our tourists who you know, have luggage dragged behind them. Uh, and Central Station plays a critical role for mm. all of those customers. We need to make sure that we're really planning for a Central Station that meets all of their needs. Yeah. And just just going back to the leadership thing, um, what points you made, you know, there's there's gender diversity, but I think you also made an important point as well, um, just around skills diversity. So you, you actually don't need to be a subject matter expert to be a leader. And that would have been the typical linear pathway, you know, in, in leadership. And that's, I don't think that's, we talked about collaboration earlier on. And I think that's acceptance that, uh, that people are, like yourself are synthesists yes. that synthesize information, uh, and are able to ask challenging questions from, from a different perspective and provides greater outcomes for the state and for, for our city. Yeah. And, and that employment pattern's not just unique to transport. When I was working in education, there was the progression. You were a classroom teacher. Yeah. You were a principal. You, were a principal. you worked yeah. as a bureaucrat. Yep. You became an executive director, and mm. then you worked up your way in central office um, to, you know, a director general's position. But and it's it's, it's the same in health. Yeah. Uh, so we need to think about how different mindsets and different perspectives and different ways of thinking from university backgrounds and academics 
bring new solutions to a problem. And, and I think that's what I've brought in to many parts of my career, asking those questions that allow for new solutions to emerge. Yeah, that's fantastic advice, I think, for our listeners. Now, I've got one last question. If I Hypothetically, if I gave you a magic wand and you could apply it to Sydney um, and you could apply anything you admire in any other city around the world, I'll give you three things you, you can apply. What would they be? First of all, I would think about growing the metro mm. more and more. So it's a metro, a huge it's metro. A huge metro, like 200 kilometres of metro yeah. would be fantastic yeah. around Sydney. Uh, and that would be a game changer for how people can get around and commute to jobs and connect to each other without yeah. getting their car out of yeah. their garage. So for me, that's a key thing. The second is we have such a beautiful harbour and river system and making sure that our transport solutions make the most of that and allow people to really get out on their boats and enjoy that beautiful harbour more and more. Uh, I'm conscious that it's such a beautiful part of what attracts overseas visitors to our beautiful city and for Sydney siders we need to make sure that all of us have the opportunity to to benefit from that beautiful harbour that we have. Yeah. And I think the third thing would be about cycling and walking and making sure as we plan our cities for the future, we're really thinking that that's the best way to promote people getting around. It's a healthy choice. It means people connect. They make eye contact. They're building community in their local space. And it creates an opportunity for everyone to think about playgrounds and parks and open spaces in a very different way. Claire, there's some great initiatives with your magic wand. And again, thank you very much for joining me on Talking Cities today. I'm sure all our listeners will be taking away some new highlights and insights on walkability and the future of transport. Thank you. If you would like to provide feedback on this conversation or any of the others we have at Talking Cities, we love hearing from you. So why don't you just drop us a line at talkingcities at aecom.com. That's Talking Cities, just like our name. Hope to hear from you. 